What happens when we face difficult conversations? These conversations can heal. They can foster forgiveness. They can inspire and change perspective. Lean into these stories and discussions. I think both our guests and our listeners will find value in them. And selfishly, I know I will too. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining Lean In. I'm here with a friend of mine named Tyron Mallard. He is a licensed professional counselor currently working in the Las Vegas area. Tyron, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just start by just kind of hearing about your upbringing. Where, Where were you raised at? How did you ultimately find your way out in Vegas? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> I was I'm originally from Los Angeles, Crenshaw District area of Los Angeles. What brought me to Vegas initially was I did undergrad. I, I moved to Vegas initially for undergrad. I went to uh, UNLV, so I spent some years there. So, although my journey took me other places, I always landed back in Vegas for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, how did you uh, how did you find your your way into counseling? You went to UNLV. What did you study there? And uh, why was counseling the, the, the area for you? Honestly, uh, counseling and, and therapy picked me. It, it wasn't something that I was honestly shooting for. Initially, I went to school for, for pharmacy. I was uh, pre-farm and I took all of the science courses and all of my requirements to do that. But at the same time, my major was psychology at UNLV. But honestly, I was going there just to get my credits to, to go into pharmacy. So what happened is after going to UNLV and then actually getting into pharmacy school, I realized quickly that wasn't something that I wanted to do long term. So from having all of those science courses, I ended up being a, a teacher. So for a year, I went into teaching. After a year of teaching, all the problem students were being sent to my classroom, even if I had, whether I had them or not. And um I understood, I start understanding their stories, that um, their grades and their behavior was bigger than uh, just them, th- their choice to, to, to behave that way. There were all psychosocial issues going on at the home and, and stressors that most teachers couldn't understand. So that was my first look into the helping profession, although I was a teacher at the time. I don't want to make the story too long, but I moved to Atlanta to teach, to continue teaching. My relative, a cousin, I uh, was a vice principal at a school and he invited me to Atlanta just for a change of scenery. And for some reason, my license was delayed. It was completely delayed. It took forever. So I was just out there in Atlanta just trying to figure it out. So just walking around the community, I saw like some lost kids, really some youth out there that really had no direction and just didn't know what they were doing. Just just being a nuisance, <laughs> if you could say. Yeah. And um, and the complex I lived in was a beautiful complex. I mean, it had like soccer, tennis, basketball, every field you can think of and no one using it. And one day I saw the kids and I brought a football and a basketball and I put it in the middle of the court. I said, you guys have plenty of things to do here, right? And over time, this complex evolved to this place that everyone just – they just met up and played soccer, football, and basketball to the point where people in the community was getting involved. You would have people come in at night and flash their lights so the kids could play basketball. And um, 
one day I walk into a mall and a friend of mine was with me and so many people like knew who I was. And they were like, you've been here for three months. Like, how do you know all these people? (laughs) And I looked outside one day and I saw the fields full and I said, wow, like I contributed to this, you know, and my calling is something other than teaching because what I can present in one hour can be undone in the other seven. Mm. So I, I wanted to have more of an impact on lives. And that's what brought me into the helping profession. Honestly, a delayed license that ended up coming a week before I left. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> huh? It's crazy how things work out, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So eventually you, uh, you, you went to school, you got your, you went to more school, did more training, <laughs> I should say. Yes. Uh, yeah. And got your, your license in, in professional counseling. Correct. What uh, what areas, if any, do you specialize in or do you have a particular interest in in, in terms of counseling? Well, initially, I, uh, I moved to Baltimore, Maryland, and that's where I, I did my studying. And that's actually clinical social work was the was the, the, the degree I received there. And uh, my specialty then was substance use in mental health. That's that was my initial specialty. But over time, that evolved to crisis. I started being a, a crisis therapist. And where that happened is uh, when I'm, I lived in Seattle, Seattle, Washington, where, you know, the suicide rate is really high. Mental health as a whole is a, is a, is a huge issue there. And I really got into crisis. And it was my like ability early on to quickly assess the, the client that really, really drew me to the crisis work because everything is so immediate. In um, outpatient therapy, you could see the, see the client for three, four weeks to, to diagnose them and figure things out. In crisis work, you need to know immediately. You, know, you need to know right away because you are sending this, this client home with the, or patient home in the hospital setting with the disposition of, I feel safe after they, you know, attempted to commit suicide or they um, endorse any suicidal ideation. So uh, I knew um, I had early on, even prior to practicing therapy, the ability of, to assess my environment and the people in it. So crisis work, I would say, is my uh, specialty. Gotcha. Well, I will say I was raised by a social worker. <laughs> my, okay. my mother, yeah, my mother is a, is a retired social worker. I work with a lot of people in social work. Uh, through my job, and and I will say it takes a special person to do that work, and so I and I and I know you well enough to to know how much helping people and helping the community means means to you, and so you now are in a position where you you have uh, an established practice uh, in the community. Talk to us about talk to us about that. What what kind of clients do you see? Uh, what's that work like? Um, it's a wide range, honestly. There is, um, and I can't even, I can't, I can't break it down to a type of client. We see uh, kids and and elderly, any anywhere from five to to sixty five, and um, we pretty much cover uh, just about all any diagnosis you can think of. So uh, everything under the spectrum. Uh, any any client that comes in here with. Any uh, psychosocial concerns or emotional disturbances, we're, we're here to help. So we don't really uh, have a specialty when it comes to our clientele. Gotcha. We kind of were joking a little bit before we hit record. And I mentioned how I, 
I would I would be pretty safe to bet that there, this has this conversation hasn't happened that many times where you have a, a black male physician and a black male therapist uh, on the same platform. And, and I want to talk about that a bit. And and in my work, I, we, I talk a lot about health disparities that we that we see across you know racial backgrounds. Just as much as we see health disparities, we see mental health disparities. And 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 black and brown people tend to suffer from mental illness uh, at rates um, higher than than some other groups. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that there is an absence of, you know, underrepresented therapists and counselors out in the communities. What do you feel like your your presence as as a and I get let me take a step back. I this is not an exaggeration. I'd say every couple of months I get a text or a call from someone asking me specifically for a black recommendations for a black therapist. Uh, or a black male therapist, right? And it's they're hard to come by. They're hard to find. What do you think for you as a, a black therapist? What do you mean to a patient who knows that you might understand their experience a little bit better than someone of a different racial background? That means a lot. And I want to for you to better just just to conceptualize all of this. I want to give you a short story and. I promise everything is not going to be a story, but this is because this is very it was, this was very important in my development as a as a provider. I moved to uh, Baltimore, Maryland in 2011, and this is when I became started practicing being a counselor. And this was the first time I really saw uh, just just racism <laughs> in in the, the fashion that is in your face. Being from Los Angeles. Every every culture has their own community. You know, you have a little Ethiopia, you have a little everything in Los Angeles. So everything is pretty segre- segregated. However, people join in common areas and there's not people looking at you or treating you a certain way based on your race. If you could pay to be there, you're good to be there in Los Angeles. <laughs> but it's not that way. In uh, with my experience in Baltimore, I've had situations where I had my next door neighbor run from me. You know, when we were walking from our car. So I didn't realize the the toll it would take on me mentally, you know, because after a while I started uh, I started uh, making it, I would say, trying to adapt and trying to make the people that my new neighbors feel comfortable. And when I did that, I alienated my audience the very people that look like me. And I walked into uh, to work one day and I told tell my buddies the story all the time. And it was a kid that was really upset. And I, I was dealing at the time pretty much the roughest group in Baltimore City you can imagine. <laughs> you had 20 of the, the 20 juvenile delinquents in one room and they don't like each other. And um, one guy I was trying to calm down and trying to reason with him. And he looked at me and said, I don't know you. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I had I had um, tried so hard to, you know, code switch and and adapt to my environment that I started alienating the people who look like me. And as a result, my authenticity didn't didn't shine through anymore. So as soon as I realized that and this kid taught me that lesson, everything changed the way I practiced, the way I was from then on unapologetically myself and unapologetically black. And after I made that change, I started connecting better with my clients of all races. 
So, but especially when um, a person that could feel that I'm from their environment and I can now be their therapist is it's therapeutic within itself. Wow. Yeah, that's a great story, man. I'm all for stories. So, you know, any story <laughs> you have, yeah, feel free to for, feel free to let us have it. You know, I uh, it makes me, uh, you know, kind of parallel your your world with mine uh, when we know in 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 medicine that um, all the data shows that black patients have better health outcomes when they have a black physician. Brown patients have better health outcomes when they have a brown physician. Hell, even white patients in the research have better outcomes when they have white physicians, right? And so uh, all of the data that we find in our field seems to be paralleled uh, in, in your field as well. And, and, and we know that there's something that we refer to as cultural humility. And if you are a provider and you just can't understand or be empathetic to someone else's culture or their experience, you're going to have a hard time taking care of them. And I would imagine that's especially the case when you're dealing with someone's mental health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you said, there's been many uh, cases where um, I would get a phone call and I don't, I don't even, in some cases, I don't know how some of my clients find me because I'm not posted anywhere and they'll say, I'm looking for a black therapist and maybe they go by my name. I don't know what it is, but you're right. That, that it really is a thing. One other thing I want to talk about is at least in, in my experience, the stigma that is in existence uh, in our culture, at least where there are some occasions where the black experience is kind of resistant to, to therapy. Is that something that you have seen? Is that something that you see changing? Uh, what are what are your thoughts on that? This is something that I have seen, but I this is also something I've, I've seen change throughout the years. What I would say about that is when you're dealing with any oppressed culture, it's difficult to have systems involved, right? Systems that have not been proven to be beneficial, right? If, so you're giving information, you, you're giving backstories, you're giving family secrets to a person that is recording this information. And although you tell them it's confidential, you know, in oppressed communities, it's hard to trust that that information is confidential. So then that same same thing with um, the brown community as well. When you have first generation uh, family and, and uh, family of immigrants, they don't want to put their name in the pot and, and put their name in systems. So it's difficult to... Uh, to get them in therapy. But I, I feel that the change is happening with social media and more uh, celebrities, you know, endorsing, you know, getting, taking care of your mental health because in the past, the celebrity was a superhero, but our superheroes of the past would commit suicide. And that's when you knew that they were, something was wrong with them. And a lot of kids followed that trend that they felt they had to be suicidal to, to and, and not really address that mental health. But now you have more celebrities as superheroes coming out to say, I have this vulnerability here. I have I struggle with anxiety and um, it's opening the door for the youth to say, I want therapy. Now there's nine year olds coming out and say, I have anxiety and I thought I'd never see that day. But it's definitely uh in the past, the, the parents were forcing their kids to come to therapy. And now the kids are advocating for themselves to come into therapy. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of uh, people say the, the, the simple phrase, it's, it's OK to not be OK. You know, we, we I think we're doing better 
and acknowledging that we all have mental health issues. Correct. Uh, and in that old belief that, you know, having a therapist was a luxury, it's, I think, starting to kind of go by the wayside and people are seeing that it's maybe more of a necessity for, for some people to, to, to have, uh, have a therapist. Another question that I, I want to kind of get your, your, your input on is, is how do we go about normalizing uh, the prioritization of our mental health? I believe that's being done now. I think talking about it, being open about your mental health, understanding your mental health is the one thing because a lot of clients I see uh, are late 30s and 40s and didn't realize they had anxiety all their lives. And they, they were told that they had ADHD as a child and they, they felt their concentration was due to ADHD when it's really they, they've been dealing with anxiety their whole life. So just educating um, our people and just people in general, educating people on uh, mental health, uh, give them some psychoeducation, help them understand what, what the symptoms look like, be able to separate, you know, a, a moment of anger for, for having uh, emotional issues. So I think constant psychoeducation and uh, continue to promote uh, the importance of centering yourself and meditation and, uh, and mental health is, is very important. And I feel like we're, we're, we're moving in the right direction. One thing I think here that happened in the in, in the, the media here recently that I think was a positive, and you you kind of alluded to it, I, I think uh, was Naomi Osaka, uh, the the tennis player, coming out to stand up for herself and say, right now, I, I just I need some time. Right, I'm not where I need to be from a mental perspective, and I think you know, although she's from Japan, she's 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 black as well, and I and I think it really has helped to have someone who is a prominent figure who's well-recognized, who's, who's rich and famous, say, hey, although I have all these things, I still struggle with some of the same issues that, that really everybody else does. Correct. Yeah. And, and you have like basketball players like DeMar DeRozan and, and you have uh, Kevin Love Kevin Love, and Paul George come out and, and express that same sentiment that they, they struggle with these things and it's okay because I, I look, I just look back at a lot of uh, – celebrities and people that we all look to at some points and being in my profession, I could diagnose them. I could say, I could see what they're struggling with, you know, by looking at them, but you would never know because that they've never expressed that. So I'm, I'm glad that celebrities are now open, you know, being more vulnerable and, and is allowing others to say, okay, if that person is able to uh, express themselves and, and, and be vulnerable, I can too. You've taken care of a lot of a lot of patients, a lot of clients over the years. Could you maybe think of uh, a specific case or just in general where you've seen and how you've seen someone seeking counseling and therapy, how that's benefited or maybe even changed their lives? Wow. There's been so many examples of that, uh, but I want to draw from one particular case. This is a crisis case. And being a... Uh, an African-American male in crisis this is not a very easy thing because you're going into the home in a lot of cases. Sometimes you're in the ED, but in a lot of cases, you're going into the home. And I remember it was a teenage, teenage boy and his family, and they were really struggling. He was really struggling with suicidal ideation and, and his depression. And um, 
I remember walking into the door in this family and there's a nice, wholesome, uh, upper middle class family. And they looked at me like, what can you possibly do for us? And I understood they did that not because of my credentials, because of what I look like. And what I do purposely is I dress comfortably. I don't wear suit and tie. I don't wear shirt and tie. I dress comfortably just to show the people I work with. The only thing that separates you and I is a need. That's it. You know, I could be in your chair. You can be in mine tomorrow. You know, and um, I, I come in there as comfortable as possible. So I think the combination of that and, and the way I looked really threw them off. They weren't expecting a black male therapist to come into their home. And they looked at me like, what can you possibly do for me in our family? And, and they just stared at me, the, the entire introduction of what I could do for them. And I said, you know, let's cut this out and let me talk to your son. Let me let me talk to your son and I'll sh- I'll show you, you know, that yeah. there's some work to be done here. And I sat in the room with their son for about an hour and I basically gave him normalized his symptoms and, and, and help him normalize. He, he felt like an outlaw because he was dealing with depression and he didn't understand the origins of it. So I educated him on, on possible origins of his depression. And not only that. I normalized it and help, helped him understand that I understand you because I'm not because I'm psychic, because other people struggle with the same thing. So he was his mind was blown that I understood his symptoms and understood everything he was going through. And that ability to relate to him allowed him to open up. And he said, I'm ready to go to therapy. I'm ready to tackle this. He said, thank you so much. And he gave me a hug and he cried. And this is a 17 year old boy. And he comes to his parents and apologized to, to them. And he said, I get it now with the tears in his eyes. So the whole family's crying. So I have a case manager with me, with me and downstairs is like, what did you just do up there? You know, <laughs> not, not understanding, you know, what, what happened, but it was really my ability just to connect. And um, that moment, they never called us back again, which was a great thing. Wow. They didn't call us back. No, no, no further crisis. And, and he, he went to therapy and ended up going off to college. So uh, it was a success story. And it was one of my favorites because not because of the intervention, because the expectation when I walked in was yeah. very low. Yeah. There's a lot of layers to that one, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So that, that actually probably leads me into Probably my last question, maybe maybe most important question, is what would be your recommendations for for someone who knows that they need help? They're a little hesitant to ask for help. They don't know who to turn to for help. What what's what would be a, a really good first step for them to getting the help that they need? That's a good question. Um, depending on what what stage they're in, uh, uh, there's a lot of information that I wasn't, even though I'm, I'm, I'm not that old, but in my time, you need an encyclopedia to get the information that, that kids can just Google. So I, I think, um, the first thing I would do in this day and age is educate myself, right? Understand my, my, my symptomatology and, and really do some research and, and try to understand what I'm going through. And first, can, does this education help me, you know, uh, address it? And if not, I un- understand that you can't do it on your own. 
at that point, right? Because in some cases you can. It's good to have a therapist, but you don't always need a therapist. Some therapists act like chiropractors where they just have you come in for 10 years. When someone tells me I've been I've been seeing this therapist for 10 years, I would say that's a horrible therapist. So, <laughs> uh, so if someone is able to educate themselves, identify those those symptoms and, and, and get some understanding on how to change their rational thinking on their own, it's a beautiful thing. But if those issues persist, then that's when you you need to look for help. And there's many options out there. You, you, it's you, you talk to you psychology today and a lot of platforms that you could use to find a therapist of your liking, whether it's you're looking for cultural preference, a language preference, all that stuff is there. So there, those options are out there. But I would say first things first is to educate yourself and not in a, a WebMD sense, <laughs> but just so you can b- understand the basics of what you're feeling. Man, wonderful, man. Well. Thank you again for your time. I know it's uh, I know you're busy. I know it's hot out there in Vegas. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your insight. Thank you for your stories and and thank you for what you do because I know there's such a need uh, for someone who looks like you and is as good as their, at their job as you are uh, in, in this space. So thanks, thanks, thanks a lot. Not a problem. Uh, I appreciate you having me. Let me know your thoughts about this episode. I'm easy to reach on Twitter at Jabron Pasha, on Instagram at What Medicine Did, and on unlockingimplicitbias.com. Thanks for leaning in with me.